people of the Republic. Hurrah! Justice is served. Bring forward the evil one. I'm guessing you're writing a comment about the uh, the weird class dynamics happening here. Don't you judge me. <laughs> Hello, once again, welcome to the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Greyhawk. And I'm your co-host, Jackson Eflin. Thank you for joining us for issue two of the what-ifs of our comics bracket. This week we will be discussing 1991's The Addams Family as well as 1993's Addams Family Values. Also, the what-if section is essentially, what if this movie did better, in theory. However, this is more, what if we realized this movie should have been on the bracket in the first place. So again, eternal flogging for us, the creators of this bracket who forgot to include these movies. Mm Mm-hmm. So, The Addams Family, based on a newspaper comic satirizing the upper crust, as it were, but through a very gothic lens that went on to make a series of movies and other pop culture phenomena. In fact, most people, especially when this film was coming out, didn't even remember it from those newspaper comics at all, but the 1960s television show. Now, what are you going to talk about? My spiders. (gasps) That's marvelous. If the spiders don't get him, and being shy and modest doesn't get him, Use the trap. <laughs> Good hunting. Sort of leave it to beaver, but more leave it to zombie beaver. Heavy competition with the monsters on air during the same time period. That would have been a more obvious reference. <laughs> yeah. For our more millennial viewers, they probably might recognize the Scooby-Doo specials that involve the Adams Family. Now I know why this house looks so familiar. It belongs to the Adams Family. You're right. I've seen it on TV lots of times. And they probably also are relatively familiar with these two films. Yeah, I think these are pretty big in the pop cultural zeitgeist. I also remember a animated series in the 90s that I used to watch, a live action TV sitcom from the late 90s, The New Adams Family. There's also a, another Adams Family film from 98 that was direct-to-video. Starring Tim Curry as Gomez Adams. Yes, Adams Family Reunion. It is not nearly as good as these two. No. But it has some good bits. Lurch is not actually a full Adams. He's also part Murkowski, part Cohen, part Fergasso, part Murtaugh, and part Torres. Except, of course, for the kidneys. We're not entirely sure where they came from. But most assuredly, he has the heart of an Adams. And you might also be familiar with the more millennial takes on things like Adult Wednesday Adams, which is just Wednesday Adams in various adult millennial situations. Uh, so I take it that you're not on Facebook either. I don't like to make it that easy for the FBI. Oh, okay. Um, so how can I get into contact with you? I have an email address. Cool. In memory of Wednesday at gmail.com. That makes it sound like you're dead. <laughs> I like to plan ahead. Or the Adams Family Musical, where Wednesday Adams brings home her college boyfriend, who's just a sweet normal guy. They're normal people, not like you, not like me. Please, can't we be an average family? One 
normal night. That's all I want. That's all I need from you. One normal house without a mouse to feed a plant or two. We also have later this year a new animated feature. Which has a great cast. Yeah, the teaser looks a little bit rough, but it's still a little bit too early for me to draw any final conclusions, but it doesn't look strong at the moment. Right, but we'll see. Look at the teasers for Frozen versus what we actually got. Fair enough. And of course, before we get into the movies, I do want to talk about the tune that's been stuck in my head for weeks that when it comes out of the movie, I immediately go... It's a great theme. The films make great use of it, and I'm really glad because it's a really just strong branding thing to just have that. Yeah, and that was taken from the theme song from the 60s television series. There's something about 60s television and just how catchy some of those themes are and how evocative they are half a century later. It's incredibly impressive. I think the Adams Family one is strong because it involves a certain amount of call and response. Like you get the dun and then snap snap and then you get the dun again and then snap snap follows it. Once you've heard it twice you now know how it's going to work so every time in the future you can automatically join in. It doesn't, doesn't require being able to sing or do complex patterns. It's just snap snap. It is probably a good thing that they've lost the lyrics over the years. The tortured rhymes are not very strong in that song. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They're all together hooky, the Adams Family. No, but again, that 60s charm is there, so Mm -hmm. yeah. And speaking of charm, these movies oozes charm. Mm -hmm. Most of that is down to the cast. We have some really excellent actors here. We have the late Raul Julia as Gomez. They say a man who represents himself has a fool for a client. Well, with God as my witness, I am that fool. Angelica Houston as Morticia. Great Aunt Calpurnia. She was burned as a witch in 1706. They say she danced naked in the town square and enslaved a minister. Don't worry. We've told Wednesday, college first. And they play off each other incredibly well in both of these films. How long has it been since we've waltzed? Oh, Gomez. Hours. As the patriarch and matriarch of their family, they have this very good balance where Rel Julia is incredibly expressive and he gives 510% to every line. And then Angelica Houston will give just a few words of this very cool, gentle, fully collected character. The balance of the intense fiery and the ice queen is really good and it helps that despite being these mysteriously ooky characters, they have a very loving relationship and it's great. The other two standouts I would say are Christopher Lloyd as Fester. Sorry, but I have to get back. I've got a lot of things cooking in the Bermuda Triangle. As well as Christina Ricci as Wednesday. Why are you dressed like somebody died? Wait. The rest of the cast is fine, but they just don't get a whole lot of spotlight to really exude their roles very well. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, Pugsley is a withdrawn character. Even when he has good bits, he doesn't really get to take up the space as well as everybody else does. Surprisingly good child acting in both of these films. Oh, yeah. Unfortunately, the antagonists in the first film are not terribly interesting. But in Adam's Family Values, we get Joan Cusack as Debbie, who is amazing having the time of her life tapping into a sort of Cruella Deville space mm-hmm. oh I just adore little babies 
I just want to grab them and squeeze them till there's not a breath left in their tiny little bodies. <laughs> New money, unrepentantly evil, really excited about using murder as her way to power. Unfortunately, Cruel Deville's Definitely old money, not new money, but all the other points stand. Yeah. We also get David Krumholtz as Joel Glicker in Adam's Family Values, Wednesday's love interest. Most of you might recognize him from a few cameo scenes in Firefly as well as Serenity. Or if you've ever seen the television show Numbers, he's the main character. Interestingly enough, <laughs> one of his co-stars from Numbers, Peter McNichol is also here as one of the camp counselors. I'm sure someone on Tumblr has a complicated theory for how those are connected, and if you have a link for that, hit me up. Another fun fact. We actually have a director cameo for this film, Barry Soddenfeld, who we've talked about previously as he was the director for Men in Black, is here as Mr. Glicker, Joel's father. So he gets a few scenes to ham it up. I think hammy is definitely the right word. These films are incredibly camp, campier than I remembered, and they live and die on that camp. I think if you aren't here for the mood and vibe that they're into, then you're probably not going to have a good time. If you haven't seen them, they're both on Hulu right now, so now's a good time. So probably just brief little plot summaries. The conceit in the first one is that Fester has been gone for 25 years he's been missing the adams family's accountant is in deep with some loan sharks and the loan shark's son has a very striking resemblance to fester so they try to pass him off as fester in order to get the adams family fortune eventually the son of the loan shark ends up siding with the adams family and deciding to turn against his abusive mother and the cowardly accountant and live life with the adams unfortunately at the very end there's this bit where they kind of just uh sweep everything aside and it's like oh he had amnesia and he really was fester all along i think the amnesia part is kind of where the film falls apart a bit the explanation that fake Fester, who is the real Fester, gives that he was lost in the Bermuda Triangle, and they specifically don't use the idea that the Bermuda Triangle gave him amnesia, which would have been a really good cover for why he doesn't remember the things that this person wouldn't remember if he was actually not Fester. That would get him by a lot of the questions when Gomez is saying, ah, remember the thing we used to call each other as children? And then he, he can't. You forgot our secret password? The word we used a hundred times a day? Our special private name for each other? And he could have just said, oh no, it was amnesia from Rita Triangle, but they don't go with that? I don't know. Weird, weird choices. Yeah. Also, I know that this is going to be a somewhat self-evident thing, but the Bermuda Triangle is inconsistent in this film. There seems to be some sort of internal mythology with it that they don't follow, and it bugs me. Wednesday Adams says that... Nobody gets out of the Bermuda Triangle. Not even for a vacation. But also, apparently that's where her parents had their honeymoon. Oh, Gomez. The Bermuda Triangle. Devil's Island. The Black Hole of Calcutta. Excuse us. Second honeymoon. And I... Pick one. Pick one movie. Pick one. There's just a lot of that sort of sloppy continuity all throughout the film. Watching the film now with a critical eye, it very much seems like they were mostly going to really just examine these characters in their everyday lives, but they didn't really have a good idea for a plot that would necessitate a feature-length film, and so they kind of just threw this thing in. I think if they would have gone with having an external antagonist to the Adams as opposed to having like a traitor in their mists, it would have been 
been a lot more interesting and it probably would have helped with the pacing of the film. The pacing is, I think, a really good place to pick it apart. So there's a bit where through the machinations of the antagonist, the Adams are forced out of their home, put under a restraining order, and have to live out of the hotel and get civilian jobs, which is a really good bit that should have been a big part of the film. But here it's just maybe the last 20 minutes before they go back and resolve things. It doesn't last that long. That should have been the entire second act, or at least from the midpoint onward, that should have been the new status quo. The best thing to do with the Adams is put them in with normal people, and if they're just in their house with each other, then they're not at their best. If you had got them out of the house sooner, it would have meant more comedy situations could have come up, and the stakes would have gotten higher faster, and that would have made it more engaging. Yeah. We spend too much time with fake Fester getting acclimated, and then the family calling into question whether it's actually Fester or not, and then finally the plot point of Fester is the older brother, so he's the one who owns everything, and he can kick them all out really easily. I get that they didn't get that knowledge until the welcome home party for Fester, where all the Adams come in, but they could have easily moved that much sooner. As far as the Adams interacting with the normals, we get bits and pieces of that throughout the film. It's just never consistent enough. Towards the beginning of the film, we have Gomez and their neighbor, the judge. We have Morticia interacting with Wednesday's concerned teacher and everything like that. A very good scene. Yeah. You see, this is our class bulletin board. This month, our theme is our heroes. You see, Susan Ringo has chosen the president. Have you spoken to her parents? And those bits are fun, but the public school thing could easily have been part of the whole they're forced out and have to go to public school instead of just something they're already doing. Honestly, replacing most of the introductory scenes, getting a feel for the Adams with that play would have worked out much better. I think it would have gotten us acclimated sooner as opposed to just having the Adams doing stuff at home. Most of the scenes are fun on their own or whatnot. It's just that the tension doesn't hold up that well as a full film. There are some scenes that I would totally cut, probably the model train scene with Gomez. I think that's mostly just a callback to the 60s television show. Yeah. While we talked about how the antagonists aren't that compelling, there are, I can't remember her actual name, but uh, Dr. Pinderschlaus, mm-hmm. the mother of the fake fester who comes in to be his psychologist who's been looking after him in the facility or whatnot, is kind of fun. She has a great line where she's questioning why fester cares about these people, and she says, They're evil and corrupt and degraded. I can give you that. But also there are ways in which she is kind of tapping into the Mother Gothel vibes from Tangled. She's got some abuser dynamics in there that are a little bit haunting. They're not your family, Gordon. I am. They don't love you. I do. And those come in towards the final scenes of the film where Fester finally decides to betray her and the accountant. Another thing that bothers me a little bit and it just bugs my suspension of disbelief is that The Adams are old money, and they are incredibly loaded, but they're so completely incompetent with their wealth, it doesn't make much sense. I'm going to hand wave that as something something magic, because if you try to unpack the mechanics of the world in which the Adams live, it doesn't really make sense, so I'm going to just... You're not wrong, but if we go down that road, we'll have to ask a lot of other questions, and it will... I think that's kind of not the point. Yeah, Yeah. that's fair. I also, I think that mostly comes down to there's no possible way I can read that now the way someone would have read it 30 some years ago. Class consciousness is in a very different place in 2019 than it was in 91. 
Yeah. In terms of class, it's it's definitely like squirrely and icky. But like in terms of the mechanics of the world, I'm I'm going to say eh, magic. But yeah, like the class dynamics aren't great. And while I do like that they're a happy family, the happiness of their family isn't never seems in question. And so their only real conflict is, oh no, we don't have money anymore, which sucks. But eh, so it's, it's life. And honestly, I think they would have been fine if they never got their money back. I think it was more just depression and being hurt by the betrayal from Fester, who they welcome into their home and loved. But I don't necessarily think the film does a good job of portraying that and accentuating that as opposed to, oh, we're poor now and live a tell. Right. Because, I mean, I assume they have other access to funds and also they have this huge extended family that they could probably turn to if they needed to. And, I mean, it's not like they're horrible Rich people, like, they do technically donate to charity, sort of. <laughs> At least to a weird scene, but they willingly give up their treasures at the drop of a hat for people in need. This is too extravagant. Let's keep it. Hush, Mama. It's for charity. Widows and orphans. We need more of them. Yeah. If anything, you could have used the scenes of them doing poverty tourism to realize, hey, we have this wealth, we should use it to help people. Yeah. Love to be a growth arc. Mm. Again, that's fine, but I I can't read that the same way with the way I am now viewing the charitability of the rich, especially after most of Anand Gadardas's work with like Winners Take All and seeing how these rich people are able to rig the system and then try and pass it off as, oh, we're doing well by doing good or we're giving back. I don't think class consciousness in 2019 is very kind to the Adams family. And I mean, admittedly, they are villains. They're not antagonists, but they are objectively villains. I was keeping account and there's at least 19 deaths that I can attribute to the Adams in these movies, uh, either on screen or mentioned in dialogue or at least implied in dialogue, not including an entire cruise ship. So they are evil rich people, but the film doesn't really unpack how their evil and their depravity is connected to wealth, and also it makes their evil and depravity seem really fun, which it is. So yeah. yeah, and that's much more in line with the old comic strips as opposed to any of the film or television adaptations. I think Adam's Family Values does a slightly better job critiquing some of this. It's not great, but it, it is motion towards being better about it. Yes. So Adam's Family Values is actually kind of a similar concept. There's a outsider trying to take their money through Uncle Fester. Morticia has a baby, and the upset in the social dynamic causes some strife, so they hire a series of nannies. Eventually, one of their nannies manages to stick it out by being on the same murder wavelength as everybody else, but on the opposite end of the goth prep spectrum. And she's a chronic widow who sets her sights on Uncle Fester, and to get Wednesday Adams out of her hair, sends the kids off to summer camp. And that's kind of where we get our two plots for the film. The summer camp plot and the Uncle Fester plot. She manages to get married to Uncle Fester and drive a wedge between him and his family and use it to get access to his wealth to augment yet more of her own wealth. Meanwhile, the kids are at summer camp having exactly the effect on a summer camp that you would expect from Pugs and Wednesday Adams. Eventually they're all reunited and they manage to defeat their evil new in-law and are reunited as a happy family. And the summer camp is where we get a lot of the more class consciousness aspects because it is very heavily critique of this sort of upper class summer camp where you're paying 20 grand for summer camp. And the satire of the rich is really satisfying there. 
Yeah, it is surprising how well Camp Chippewa works as a metaphor for white privilege and white supremacy, even though it was written almost 30 years ago. Right. We're only about 50 years out from the Hitler Youth not being a thing anymore. And so the summer camp that is full of all these blonde children who are oppressing the ways of the Adams and the Jewish kid, uh, it's a very thinly veiled metaphor. <laughs> They're also all color-coded. All the boys wear blue, all the girls wear pink. All of the outcast kids are either Jewish or have some sort of physical or mental disability or are not white. The whitest, most able-bodied one in the group is a fat girl, which I appreciate that inclusion. I think you talked about some of the Camp Chippewa scenes being almost like a John Waters film. Yeah, like especially with how color-coded the children are. It reminds me of like something that John Waters would come up with, or also a film that would come out a few years later called But I'm a Cheerleader. I'm Joel. I'm a Jew. And, uh, homosexual. <laughs> You're not wrong. Yeah. And that leads to, I think, probably the most iconic scene of these movies, where Wednesday Adams commandeers the first Thanksgiving play of the camp counselor setting out and makes it into a story of the Native Americans slaughtering all the pilgrims. Huh? Becky, what's going on? Wednesday! You have taken the land which is rightfully ours. Years from now, my people will be forced to live in mobile homes, on reservations. Your people will wear cardigans and drink highballs. My people will have pain and degradation. Your people will have stick shifts. And I don't want to get into the complexities of how that interacts with representation and red face and all those things. That's beyond us. Out of our lane. Yeah. For the 90s, for a scene that would come out two years before Disney's Pocahontas, it's very refreshing. They're different from us, which means they can't be trusted. Uh, but speaking of uh, lanes, this film has Nathan Lane cameo. Who are you? What are you? Who moved the rock? Yes, Nathan Lane plays a desk officer at a police precinct. In one of the most Gomez going off scenes. Someone has married my brother. No. She took him to Hawaii. Get out of here. They have moved into a large, expensive home where they make love constantly. I hate when that happens. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Debbie. Let's move to the A plot. Yeah. The one that is technically more important, but is it? <laughs> the A-plot is more important, mostly because it is set up first and it ends later. It is definitely primary to Camp Chippewa's secondary, but Camp Chippewa is such a good B-plot that it almost elevates them to, like, near-equal status. Yeah. But all of the boring, clandestine hiding stuff that was going on in the first one and the worry about getting found out is done and done so much better here. It's ridiculous. And it helps that in the first one, they were just kind of sneaking around trying to get to the money. Here, Debbie is just actively trying to kill these people and it's frustrated that they apparently can't die. Well, she's mostly trying to get everyone out of the way, like anyone who is suspicious of her out of the way so she can marry Fester. And then as soon as the ink is dry on that paperwork, she is trying to murder him. Unfortunately, she keeps trying to murder him with his favorite things like electrocution and explosives. Up until now, she's been the most unhinged person she knew, but the Adams are all just as unhinged, if not more so. So she's kind of baffled that all of her normal operating procedures just do not work on them. On one hand, that leads to some comedy, but 
There's also this underlying current of the film that had Debbie not specifically come in with these selfish intentions and was trying to harm the Adams family, she would fit in incredibly well. And they even make that parallel abundantly clear because in the first film, the accountant's wife, Margaret, falls in love with and after she becomes a widow, marries cousin It, becoming part of the Adams clan, and she's back for this film. Welcome to our family. I can't tell you what it's meant to me, joining the Adams clan. And she's clearly adjusted really well and is really happy and and has not noticeably changed her her personality or expression. She's just now fitting in with the monsters. Mm-hmm. And it really is sad that Debbie couldn't have been part of that because I think she would have had a lot of fun. She has the same excitable energy as Gomez, but the same kind of enjoyment of the finer things that Morticia does. And I think they could have been a really fun group if she'd been able to see that. You know, if I were the writer, like, if they'd flipped her in some way, that would have been really fun. Mm -hmm. That could have been a really interesting ending. Honestly, if the electrocution scene at the end worked more akin to electroshock therapy. Yeah, which, I mean, electroshock therapy... Yeah, Yeah, like, there are a lot of... um, there's a lot of baggage with that. There's also a huge difference between electroshock therapy then and electroshock therapy now. Yeah. But for 1993, that's definitely something that I could have seen happening. But I also accept that murdering your antagonist in a kid's film is just part of this franchise, I guess. I would slightly hesitate to call it a kid's film because both of these films are rated PG-13. Yeah. It's not so much the kid's films, more that they're films that I watched as a kid and therefore... <laughs> <laughs> I will say that... Both of these films are surprisingly horny. Gomez and Morticia, they want you to know that they are having sex anytime the camera isn't pointed at them. In the first film, there's this scene where Gomez and Morticia are outbidding each other on this item at the charity auction that they themselves donated, and it eventually devolves into the auctioneer just kind of settling the auction, and just in the background you hear Morticia moaning. And then in the second film, there's this great bit where they're making toasts, uh... To passion. To paradise. To pain. Tonight. I think it's all encapsulated in one of the first scenes of the film. Morticia's having the baby. They rush her to the hospital, which seems a little weird. How I read the Adams Family, they definitely do a home birth. Neither here nor there. So they're at the hospital. Wednesday and Pugley are in the waiting room with this other kid their age who is also getting a younger sibling. And she's explaining how babies work to them. The stork stork flew down from heaven and left a diamond under a leaf in the cabbage patch. And the diamond turned into a baby. Our parents are having a baby, too. They had sex. I really love how sex-positive the Adams family is. Yeah, it's part of this kind of liberation that the Adams seem to offer. Uh, you kind of see that also with Cousin Margaret, who seems to be um, very excited about her cousin. It's ways of expressing affection in ways that her normie accountant husband wasn't. And it's a way of saying that even though these are physically monstrous people, that doesn't mean that they can't still express love. There's a lot of things in mainstream film where beautiful people equal beautiful sex and ugly people equal ugly sex. That's not necessarily a thing here, except for Debbie as an antagonist who's finding ways to not be festers first. I do want to say I get why they're not doing a home birth because I feel like Mama would be the closest thing they have to a medical official. And I don't trust her skills in midwifery uh, in midwifery yeah i <laughs> if she has any medical knowledge she 100 percent got her medical license from a curse <laughs> 
But speaking of corny characters, for all that Gomez is incredibly suave, Fester is not, which leads to this amazing bit where Gomez is saying that We are the luckiest brothers on earth. We are unworthy of such splendor, undeserving of such radiance. Fester says, oh, that's right. We should have ugly girls. <laughs> <laughs> the subplot of Fester trying to be confident with women is adorable. And while it's not terribly helpful with Debbie, because Debbie's at him for very different reasons, and it really doesn't matter how Fester acts, at the very end of the film, we get a new love interest for Fester introduced, and he is much more confident and able to speak with her in comparison to where he was at with Debbie at the beginning of the film. And I like that. It's a very subtle character growth, but it's there. Dementia. What a beautiful name. One other thing I want to talk about with Debbie is that there's distinctly this old money, new money divide between her and the Adams. Mm -hmm. And it's not just an aesthetic choice. It's also trying to sort of comment on vapidness and consumerism money. There's also tones of that with a lot of parents and children at Kapawa. Even at the end of the film where Debbie is electrocuted and becomes a pile of ash, the things that are left are her heels and her credit cards. Mm -hmm. And Which probably should have melted. They're made of plastic. Yeah, but they're not conductive. Ah, that's true. But I mean, like, neither were her clothes. Like that, that's not at all how electrocution works. Um, to be fair, there's a baby involved, and the baby seems to have some sort of, like, devil powers. So, who knows? He's an Adams. It's an Adams! Yeah. I guess that the film is trying to draw this distinction between new money. They have earned their money through ill-gotten means, and they don't know how to act now that they have it whereas the Adams are more in the moral right because their money's older and they're not as shitty people but uh yeah and it's complicated by the way that they're comparatively more progressive about things like sex and relationships yeah and I guess murder <laughs> <laughs> the problem with trying to apply a Marxist reading to the Adams family is that serial killer isn't really a class like where do you where do you put that like are they are serial killers owners of production? Like, I think the encapsulation of all that is towards the beginning of Adam's Family Values, we ha see Wednesday and Pugsley, quote-unquote, playing with Pubert, and they are reenacting the French Revolution. And yes, it makes sense that they'd be very into that. It's all about guillotines and bloody coups and things like that. But... The French Revolution was specifically about taking the power away from people exactly like the Adams Family. Mm -hmm. The Adams Family is some of the closest things that America has to aristocrats. We talked in our last episode about Elizabeth Bathory in Hellboy Blood and Iron, who's bathing in the blood of peasants to keep herself immortal, and she'd fit in really well with the Adams. That's 100% someone you'd have in their clan. That said, the Marines when that scene does end with Pugsley catching the guillotine and Wednesday immediately accepting this as part of the game and saying, Woe to the Republic. I appreciate that she has this kind of game-recognizes-game approach. The other thing that I really like about Values is the very adorable romance between Joel and Wednesday and how authentic so much of that feels. I have written in my notes, ah, he's fragile. Wednesday's type. 
I'm also incredibly impressed with these child actors being able to pull that off, make it believable, not make it terribly cringy. I think part of that is just how soaked in camp everything is. And they're also both obviously talented. They've made long-lasting careers out of acting, both of them. It helps that their characters are both very withdrawn. So any sort of lack of physical expression of affection that would make sense both for kids and also for child actors who don't want to make too horny because that get really weird really fast is also part of their character. So it's kind of baked in that you have an out for being relatively chaste. I also do really like that Gomez and Morticia's sex-positive lifestyle has rubbed off on Wednesday and... Is there any other way to phrase that? <sighs> has instilled Wednesday with some very healthy ideas about how relationships should work, at least healthy by Adam's standards. Right. I mean, admittedly, the last scene of the film is her playing a prank on Joel where she tries to scare him to death by making him think that Debbie's come back from the grave. If I wanted to kill my husband, I'd do it. And I wouldn't get caught. But, eh. It's clearly a prank. It's the kind of thing that her parents definitely do all the time to each other, so... If you were to try and take S&M down to, like, preteen first love levels, that's what that would look like. I'm not <laughs> sure if that's right. I feel like S&M isn't the thing that, that is, but I'm really not sure what it is. So I can't say that you're definitely wrong, even though I feel that you should be. <laughs> I mean, you're not causing physical pain, you're ta- causing psychological pain. I... Yeah. <laughs> it's not a... Perfect metaphor. But, like, there's enough evidence I can connect those dots. I suppose. And I guess S&M is definitely a big part of her parental relationship. Exactly. Like, there's many bits where they talk about causing each other pain in a sexy way. Don't torture yourself, Gomez. That's my job. No, Tish. Which does actually raise the problem that I have with these films and that both of them end with some threat to Morticia's life and I'm not actually sure if the Adams can die. And at the end of values, they're all types of electric chairs and about to be shocked to death, but I'm not actually sure if that would work. So I'm not sure what the stakes are here. Admittedly, it's more about dealing with the external threat trying to take away their happiness more than anything else, but it, I'm not sure how seriously to take the peril that they're in when they all seem to merrily murder each other all the time anyway. Mm. Pugsley, sit in the chair. Why? So we can play a game. What game? It's called... Is there a god? Yeah, there are numerous occasions where Gomez and Fester will throw knives at each other. I mean, they never actually hurt each other, but Wednesday definitely electrocutes Pugsley at one point. And there's even a part of Adam's Family Values where Fester and Gomez are talking about their sibling rivalry as children, and they definitely caused physical harm to each other. Right. And I know this is kind of part of the thing I said I wasn't going to do about trying to unpack the mechanics of how the atoms work and how you have to kind of go with it or the whole thing breaks down, but this is part of the plot of the film and the stakes, and it would help to have a better understanding of what those were or to have different stakes for your climax. Mm-hmm. One other criticism that I want to tack on and I probably should have put it in earlier with when while we were talking about class consciousness but it it kind of just occurred to me both these films we have antagonists who are trying to take away the Adams money and not necessarily taking away their money but due to the circumstances around it also take away their happiness and I really dislike that direct association between happiness and their riches yeah 
It's not great. But while we are critiquing aspects of these films, I think they are incredibly fun, incredibly watchable. They have a definite place in the pop cultural zeitgeist, and I think that place is very important. Oh, yeah. Even with all the problems of the class stuff of Adam's Family, I still think Adam's Family Values is actually incredibly useful as a metaphor for teaching children about white supremacy. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that while the class issues make it more complicated, there's definitely an element of accepting your weirdness and being part of a community that loves you for who you are and the idea that there is a place in a community for outsiders that is really important for a lot of people and Mm -hmm. While a lot of these outsiders are white and able-bodied and ostensibly, well, I was going to say ostensibly cishet, but I utterly refuse to believe that Gomez and Morticia didn't have constant wild bisexual orgies in the time before these films. You even made the comment right after the birth scene. It's a boy. It's a girl. It's an Adams. Oh, the three genders. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that. And so while it's not necessarily great that outsiderness is being primarily portrayed by comparatively privileged actors, it's still a really important metaphor that I'm glad exists. Mm-hmm. I, I think you, the audience, can pick up that Adam's Family Values kind of does everything that the first film does, but better. Pretty much, yeah. There's no reason you can't just jump into Adam's Family Values without having seen the first one and not get everything that you need out of it. Yeah. I mean, Adam's Family is still watchable, but it's not as mandatory, I guess. But if you're into this kind of gothic thing and you somehow haven't seen these, I don't know how you're that person, whatever. They're both there. And they're both a lot of fun. They're both delightful. And they're also really good, low-stress movies. If you need something to just kind of take you out of things for a bit. Yeah, if you're like hanging out with a group of people and you're looking for something low-stress to watch that you don't necessarily have to pay attention to, these are great movies to throw on. So I think with that, we'll go ahead and close out the episode. What do we have coming up next week? Uh, Next week, we have a special treat. Mike Knoll is going to join us in talking about The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen and Mystery Men. These films don't really have anything in common other than their team-up movies. And their big pulp things. They're incredibly pulp. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say Mystery Men is pulpy. More uh, captures the zeitgeist of the early 2000s and what we had suffered through as far as 90s superhero films. So I've been assuming it was pulpy fun, and and now you're implying it's not. I haven't see mystery men so going up this is going to be a mystery for me in the future there's a superhero recruitment montage set to smash mouth music that's what you can expect from this film didn't think i was gonna drink for that one but oh boy i am (laughs) um so uh look forward to that and yeah if you want to make sure to catch that episode as soon as it goes live you can make sure to follow us on facebook twitter podbean and spotify But until then, this has been the Gratuitous Pausing Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.